during this time period, there was more of a progressive, uh, widespread progressive sentiment. And so it took a lot of social engineering and propaganda to really get people on board for the Cold War after they had just been allied with the Soviet Union. But that's what they set about doing. And they, they, their argument for this is best encapsulated, uh, for the argument for post-war American empire is best encapsulated and most famously encapsulated in the American Century essay in Life Magazine by Life Magazine publisher Henry Luce, who was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he's basically acting as the PR agent for the American empire that they're planning to come up with. And the counter argument to that was Henry Wallace, who gave a speech not on the American century, but on the century of the common man. He wanted it to be a century of the common man where you have colonialism brought to an end and American uh, technology, American investment even, uh, to, and leadership to allow countries to pursue sort of cooperative internationalism and advance the security of humanity. He would make statements like, so, you know, if we are, it, it, we, if we are working with the Soviets and partnered with them, they could learn from our embrace of like democratic freedoms and rights. And we could learn from their uh, provision of universal human services like, you know, education, employment, uh, housing, these sort of things. Right. And so this was this was popular for people, as you would guess, because like the the, ar- the other argument is like, what's the argument against Henry Wallace? Like, no, we, we shouldn't. You have to make the Soviets into a boogeyman. Basically, you can't say the real motivation, which is hey, the century of the common man is not going to make us as much money. We, the people that own the media and everything. So they have to have a, a villain, a, a cartoon villain, a cartoon enemy. And they set about turning communism into exactly that. And you can argue that they go about creating their own version of the anti-communist international, which is what the Nazis and the Japanese and the Italians called their Axis Alliance. That was the technical name, was the anti-common turn. And this is this is this is the direction that the U.S. goes in, and it's really a, a, a fateful decision, and one that shows that ultimately, even in the most progressive period of United States history, who really had the political power in the United States? It was the uh, you know the, the top of the top, the the tiniest percentage of inherited wealth and or earned wealth or whatever. These big concentrations of corporate wealth were really in the driver's seat, uh, and and we see that with the way the war played out. U.S. entry into the war, and then the post-war peace. Yeah, I mean, you you brought up some really great points in there. I, I want to double back a little bit. The U.S. Nazi business involvement, or specifically Wall Street, uh, is is pretty sorted. I, I mean, we could spend hours just going over that. Um, for people not familiar, it's it's shocking stuff because I think the one thing that our education system maybe does well is turn people against Nazis. Uh, so it's sort of a, I, I, I feel it's a good starting place as sort of going through, through the looking glass for people less uh, well-versed. But I, I, a couple major ones uh, and, a, and a couple anecdotes are that John Foster Dulles helped represent under Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, as you said, I.G. Farben, who made Zyklon B, the camps, uh, Krupp Steel, which was a major part of the Nazi war machine. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of the U.S. companies that Later on, um, there's extensive evidence of um, officially the subsidiaries of GM and Ford were were removed from their parent company once the war broke out, once the U.S. was on the other side of the war. 
But in the end, the profits still came back. And there was more communication with the parent company than uh, than they would care to admit. And they were using slave labor through through um, the camps and everything during the war. Uh, one other just major thing, there's been quite a lot of work done. Uh, uh, Edwin Black is a, is a really good scholar on this point of the way that uh, IBM, specifically Tom Watson, um, of course, Henry Ford pushed the uh, Elders of Zion text. He was a big part of even getting that out there. Him and Hitler were... were a little too close for comfort, let's say. Um, and and just in general, the Dulles Henry brothers. Ford was, Henry Ford was given the highest civilian honors by Nazi Germany. It, that's the Iron Eagle Cross, which is uh, supposedly very cool in those circles, uh, but not, not in my circles. Now, I, I think it just bears stressing this fact that, like, one of the most famous U.S. capitalists was an avowed Nazi and given the top award. Here is a photo of that. I mean, this history is not very well known, but. And you have I to mean, note how, how just insane it is that, I, I mean, uh, like it's striking that Ford is still a major, like it's not been taken off. It hasn't gone away. And we're taught, oh, it's Fordism. It's the assembly lines. Ford is a great businessman. And just, you know, we sort of skip over what his actual legacy is, which is uh, by some historians estimates, Ford, GM, and Standard Oil and the Rockefellers were pretty much the main enablers of the German war machine. I mean, if you just look at oil supply, which was sent through Franco's Spain uh, from America pretty quietly again, uh, there are estimations that for the amount of oil that you would need and just generally the strength of the war machine, the campaign through Belgium and everything like uh, through the, you know, the, the second phase of the war is only enabled by the fact that U.S. industry was willing to be complicit, willing to supply and back them. And things start to shift once oil stops coming through, once that that start the tide starts to shift. But another thing you pointed out about the rise of anti-communism is as the, the media push is happening through the war, initially, as uh, as Hitler goes east, the the push in the U.S. media starts being around Uncle Joe, and suddenly Stalin is treated as this more sympathetic figure. Uh, him and FDR are on, on better relations than him and Churchill, which there's some some funny stories there. But just in general, I, I mean, we make a total 180 once the tide turns, and that's right in sort of the 1941 area, um, and. and you know, without going on too long here, I don't want to take us too far afield from where we started here. But there is a very stark turn that it was in Wall Street's interest to make sure that once we started lend-lease with the British and the Soviets, the same thing as World War One happens, and we have to make sure that that not only do they win, but they need to pay back the loans that we gave. Um, and so Stalin becomes sympathetic then, and of course, it didn't take long after that for him to go from being Uncle Joe to sort of the, the great menace that he's portrayed as pretty much ever since. Yes, the, uh, the, and the, it's also worth mentioning that the U.S. supplied Japan for its oil with like 70% of its oil, something to that effect, maybe even like 80% for, during the 30s and up to, the, up to Pearl Harbor. Well, really up to the time before Pearl Harbor, when, which was precipitated by an embargo. So the standard oil and so on was making tons of money by fueling the Japanese war machine. And that was sort of their problem, as the Japanese recognized it, that 
they the Americans had the Philippines and they had a base in Hawaii. And so if the if Japan was going to have hegemony over East Asia, um, that they were going to have to supplant the European colonial powers. So when they attack France uh, in Indochina, I also won't say France because France really shouldn't have been in Indochina, but they attack French Indochina. That leads to a U.S. embargo. And then the U.S. embargo is what freaks out the Japanese leadership. And they think, okay, if there's no peace by November, then we're really going to make plans to attack uh, the United States. And so that's what they do because they figure they knock out the uh, the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, then they can take the Philippines and Indonesia, you know, go through, get rid of all these other European colonies. And this would be the way that they would be able to establish their own zone of influence and kind of be the dominant imperial power of East Asia, which was... <clears throat> It's hard to make an argument that that's so much worse than the, the, the what was already there, which was European colonialism. And FDR made statements to this effect that like this situation would be quite different if it weren't for, you know, all the greed shown by the European colonial powers for a long time. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire. 